Welcome to episode 7 of the GEA Performance Podcast. Our guest this week is former Galway hurler and sports psychologist Tony Overeagan. He's worked with All Ireland winning teams in Ballygunner, Tipperary, John Kiley's Limerick team. He's also worked with the Galway footballers. He talks to us about overcoming dips in form and confidence, team culture, teaching players how to express themselves, visualization techniques, and what makes this Limerick team so special. Tony O did a bit of work with us with the underdogs in 2019. He's an absolute gentleman, and I hope you can take as much from this as I did. Enjoy. You played, you know, at the at the highest level, and you kind of have that um, knowledge of, you know, what it is to be the the other guy and um, or girl. And I suppose for you as a player, the fact that you're now working in this, were you the sort of player who kind of was very mentally strong? Um, Kind of very mentally organized and very confident and you felt that you already had an interest in these kind of things and that's what led you down this path or was it the opposite that you you kind of felt you know you dealt with confidence issues and stuff like that and that that trying to conquer them was something that you wanted to do for other people as well when you finished yeah i definitely didn't uh, feel a you know a hugely confident player at different times like anyone i probably went dips in terms of you know feeling anxious around my and that anxiety and nerves overtaking me and not able to you know bring my training and my skills to you know its full potential and that's probably where I got the interest in it I probably noticed maybe at 16 my first All-Ireland minor final where our nerves took over the week of the match and uh, you know I just wasn't able to deal with them and I went into the whole match you know panicking worrying about everything that could go wrong and I was focused on you know, the things that might go wrong and making mistakes. And it took my whole enjoyment of that All-Ireland minor final out of the equation. And, you know, even the match itself was a complete blur. I was just caught up in my own thoughts and my own head and it really impacted my performance. So, you know, that would have happened to me at different times in an under-21 final, the same thing in a national senior league final. And, uh, you know, I didn't really get the bottom of it till maybe... 2006 working with a sports psychologist what actually was going on for me in terms of you know the expectations and pressure I was putting on myself going into these matches and and how they're unhelpful and you know there was actually ways and means to to deal with those unhealthy expectations I was putting on myself and making the occasions a lot more enjoyable that's not to say that you weren't nervous going into playing national finals, be it Leinster finals or All-Ireland finals, but you found a better way to cope and a better way to manage that and deal with it, both your own thoughts and your own feelings. And subsequently, I felt my performance levels got more consistent as I get into my mid-20s when I was able to work on these practices and become you know, more mentally organised and, and more uh, able to, to manage my emotions in a more healthier way. And what was the kind of expectations that you, you would have been putting on yourself that, that this was the big game that you were going to make your break? That kind of conversation in your head, oh, I'm going to make my breakthrough here. This is this is everything or give us a kind of a bit more. Uh, yeah, I think uh, as a younger player, your your whole expectation is around the winning or losing the matches. So you have no actual process of how am I going to be present in the moment? How am I going to what's a good performance for me in terms of you know, actions I can do in my position and zoning in on those things. And they, for me, when you focus on things that are in your control, it starts to remove that anxiety away from the performance. So, you know, there's too many factors and variables in terms of winning or losing the match. And you can't put it down to your sole responsibility when you've, you know, 30 or 40 players involved, you have management teams, you have referees, you have weather conditions. 
So you, you can't take sole responsibility for the win or losing the matches. And if we spend too much time, you know, organising our mind around that and thinking about that and, and building ourselves up around that, well, then that's not something that's in our control and it's going to cause a lot of anxiety and worry. So, you know, bring it back to what's the process that I need to focus in on the week of match in terms of my preparation? What's the type of performance I would like to deliver in terms of uh, Sunday? And I focus on maybe two or three things around that performance. And they can be as simple as, you know, your effort level, your communication, uh, something specific within your role that's in your control. And you bring yourself back to that and you train for that on your, your sessions and you train for that mentally in terms of your visualization. And, and that's your measure or marker then in terms of your evaluation of performance. Otherwise, you know, you're not going to take anything from, from games on a consistent basis if we're just, I'm a good player if we win, I'm a bad player if we lose. And you're not recognizing maybe some of the things you learned from that training session, you learn from that performance and, and you're not developing that kind of progress and growth mindset mentality. I suppose with that as well, if if you kind of set those those goals for yourself, that afterwards you can kind of be the judge of of if you did them or not, and that's a good performance. Rather than I think with GA, there's so many people looking in that like if you're judging your your own performance on everyone else's opinion, like you kind of you don't really even know. It's a lot of insecurity, isn't it? And like, did I play well or not? You're kind of almost waiting for somebody to tell you, where you kind of know then if you hit those goals. Yeah, and over time working with players, if you don't have those kind of measures for yourself, you can kind of get washed into, okay, I better read a social media feed here because I'm uncertain if I played well, or maybe I'm going to other external sources that maybe, you know, in fairness, there's so many players in a match now, how can you measure, you know, how many stats a player had in terms of tackles or pass execution or, you know, conceded scores and there's such, um, you know, marking players now, you can't say number two is marking number 15 for the whole game because in football in hurling, it's so, so, so changeable, like, you know, so you have to absolutely have some markers for yourself in terms of your own performance and your own standard. And, you know, you're not looking for that outside validation in terms, was I good or bad? Because, you know, if you're waiting on that, then all of a sudden, you know, it's in the lap of the gods per se. And, and you're not really, you know, measuring your own progress and your own standards and, and measuring off your own self-reference, you know, effort levels. And, and they're the most important that you can be proud of, you know, in, in terms of your performance, your, your effort level and executing your own process and your own standards. And, you know, bit by bit by bit, the clearer you get on them you know, you can measure and map then your kind of progress season to season and game to game and, and week to week. I think, I suppose, again, really interesting with yourself because you were your own kind of test dummy on, on these things. But like, I, I just know myself that from different teams down through different years when you'd have sports psychologists kind of coming in before maybe, you know, a big kind of final or a, a big county final. And and I suppose there's the, the difference between having someone for one, a one showing and then having somebody with the team for always. But I, I would have found that like, you know, you'd you'd have an approach that, you know, you'd have your notes, you you take your notes and you're like, I'm gonna do this from now on, but then one bad performance and shows out. When when you when you started trying these things, you're saying around oh six or oh five, did you is that something that you found like it was a linear process in terms of how you introduced it, or was there lots of like, you know, was it a learning progress as as you went on? Yeah, I think and and everything evolved too at that time, Eamon, in terms of, you know, S&C started to come in. So there was a bit more measurements in terms of your physical skills, we'd say, in terms of fitness and flexibility and endurance and, you know, speed and stuff like that. So you could have a measure of how you're developing your physical skills. 
you know, tactically and technically, the video analysis started to come in, stats started to come in. So there was more, uh, you know, a measurement there of performance that we weren't waiting for, you know, media reports or supporters to be validating our performance, that we could actually look at it, you know, from a factual point of view. And there was evidence there in terms of what we did well, what we can improve on. And I think that led to, you know, players beginning to become more curious in terms of, you know, those aspects, technical, tactical, physical, and then the mental side of it in terms of, you know, my, my confidence, my composure, my decision making, and you're kind of putting a couple of references around that and, and how I did in terms of those as well. So, you know, I think as the game evolved, you know, players started to look for those measurements and look for kind of factual evidence of what a good performance was or, or what a, you know, an average performance was or what a poor performance was. And, you know, they wanted a bit more than saying you played well today or you put in a good effort. They actually wanted to say, you know, how did I do in my position? What went well? And, you know, we use stats and, and facts maybe to back that up and what can you improve on where you've been inconsistent and you're using that as a kind of a, like that pattern has come up now in the last three matches. Is there something individually I can work on there with the coaches around that? Is it a mental aspect? Is it a technical aspect? Is it something the opposition are doing that maybe I can train 1v1 to, to get better at it? And that's kind of level of detail that started to come into us. And, you know, I suppose just being curious and open to that led to, you know, you're using a notebook a bit more, you're working with the coaches, watching clips a bit more, and, you know, you're using your time more wisely before sessions to work on individual practices. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I suppose staying on the kind of topic of, of yourself in terms of, You've obviously gone on to have this career and working with top clubs and county teams and businesses and and you're obviously really passionate about what you do now. Like for a lot of players, county players, a lot of sports people in general, like when they come towards the end of their career and then in GA, obviously we have our career coinciding with our, our playing, but like they struggle to, I would say anyway, they struggle to kind of find that same passion for something outside of playing and that kind of brings you know, the end of playing, you know, the kind of, yeah, it's, it's, it's hard to kind of make that transition. I suppose for you now, like, how did, did you, did you find that difficult? And maybe it was just a case that you kind of just love, found something that you loved what you, you do. And like now for you, you're still involved in the sport. Are you just solely based on, you know, your, your work, your business, um, helping players, or is there still kind of like them thoughts in your head, you know, I really miss playing. I, you know, I wish I had done this in this particular game or I wish I had known this then or do you kind of have that clarity yourself? Yeah, I suppose when I finished up with Galway in 2013, um, you know, I definitely found a huge vacuum in my life there for two or three years and it wasn't easy. Like, you know, I really did miss it. Like you're talking maybe 30 or 40 hours of your life that you were dedicated to being a top sports person in Ireland and, uh, you know, away from the team environment, missing out in team meetings, training camps, you know, the big games, obviously, in Crow Park, Thurless, Ennis, Pure Stadium, wherever they were, you know, you just don't replace that overnight, like, and, uh, you know, I found it really, really difficult the first couple of years, you know, coming back to the club, um, you know, there isn't the same emphasis or intensity and, you know, the same standards, and, and that takes quite an adjustment where, you know, I was probably quite angry and quite frustrated for a year or two there, probably playing with teammates and, and maybe, not not the best teammate to be around because your expectations are up here and you know you have to kind of nearly bring yourself down and level yourself off to what the expectation is now at club level and you know those adjustments are hard as well as you know for me every week the excitement of preparing for a Kilkenny or a Cork you know it kind of got me through the week where I was working as an accountant and that was my profession but 
you know, where I got real purpose was, you know, training and performing and being an inter-county player. So, you know, that buzz, that excitement, that anticipation of, of training, of, of, you know, taking down the opposition the weekend, of getting better at your sport, that was that was massive as well to, to be missing out on. And, uh, you know, it definitely led me to a good bit of soul searching in terms of, you know, where could I get the same excitement getting out of bed in the morning uh, career-wise, you know, that I did from, from hurling and GA at the top level. And, you know, thankfully the GA, GPA had a, you know, a player development program at that time. And I would have worked with a great career coach, Fran O'Reilly, who helped me take me through the steps to find out, you know, one, one of my passions and interests outside of playing inter-county GA. And, uh, you know, from that, we kind of looked at sports psychology and, uh, you know, started a certificate in it. And that led to me going on doing a master's and, probably eight years working at No Aim and I don't know where that time has gone but you know it's just been a really really enjoyable journey and 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 been all over the country working with teams athletes and businesses has been very rewarding and it's given me great purpose and meaning in my life now as well so you know that from a career aspect and making that change was really really helpful for me um you know and I think it's a big consideration for players even at club level you know, when you're given something from, you know, 20 to 30 hours a week to something that's, you know, more than a hobby, really, it's it's a lifestyle, you know, how are you going to replace that? And, you know, for a lot of the time, I think it's a bit of experimentation in terms of, you know, trying other avenues in terms of sports. And, um, you know, I definitely found boxing and, you know, 5Ks and 10Ks and uh, sea swimming and, you know, getting involved in coaching as well, getting involved in administration in your club. They can be great kind of um, avenues for you to kind of explore your other strengths and, and what you've learned from inter-county and club involvement and, and how you can maybe help the next generation be the best they can be and provide the best environment for them. So I think it's probably putting on your explorer's hat and uh, trying to look at things that you know interest you and putting yourself into those situations and, and saying yes to as many things as possible to try and explore other hobbies, interests and passions for yourself. I think it's a bit of a flip, though, in terms of that that kind of solution. I suppose to 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 the the question that that you found was obviously finding something that you were really passionate about and that you could bring that same intensity and fill that void with. But I suppose a lot of young people um, find that when they're picking their career, they're looking for something which is actually going to make it easier to be a GA player. So they, a lot of the time, they're picking careers that you know, not necessarily something they're passionate about. They're finding something which kind of allows them to, yeah, put as much time and as, as much mental effort into playing. And it is kind of a bit of a balance because if you think of like the amount of time and effort and that you're putting into your work now and like, you know, if you were playing, you would have enough to be doing to be doing your your day to day. You wouldn't be able to come and do an extra podcast with me because you'd need to have your focus on playing. And I suppose that is a challenge for GA athletes. Like what's your kind of advice with that? Like I know it's, it's not a black and white thing, but it, it, it is a challenge because I know that I picked a career that I kind of was very passionate about and was very interested in. And yeah, like there's some days, you, not some days, there's most days you turn up to training and you're, you're spent already before you even before you even get there, where there's other people who are hopping in the door there. They've, you know, they've done a, a, a nine to five, but like they're barely they're barely there. Like they've just been focusing on, on getting to training. Yeah, there's probably, you know, two two approaches maybe looking at that, I think. You know, when you're doing something that you're really interested in and, and the day flies and it goes by, you know, there's a different kind of energy source off that. You're doing something that you really love, you're enthusiastic and excited by it and the day flies by. And, you know, we've all been in jobs, maybe part time or summer jobs or professional jobs where, 
you know, you end up clock watching and, and that's really draining too. Like when you're in something that, you know, you don't fit into, you're not passionate about and you're just really ticking the box around it. And for me, that would took as much energy out of me as, as, you know, working 12 hours as a sports psychologist sometimes because you're doing something you love and it doesn't feel like work like, you know. So, you know, 10 years of doing a career that you don't really enjoy and you don't really like, I, I think is madness, really. I think, you know, you can find something there that, you know, there is a balance too as well in terms of, you know, with the work model we have now, hybrid working from home, there's more flexibility, etc. You know, you can find careers and you can find things that you really enjoy and you can find things that there's a good balance and integration with your sports career. And I, I wouldn't be putting your career on hold for intercounty GA. I think you can meet that balance. You know, you see some of the top performers in terms of the Jack McCaffreys and others who've gone to the highest level of medicine and, you know, their lads in legal or, or their own businesses, entrepreneurs and still able to perform at a really high level on the pitch. So it can be done with the right organisation. And I think a lot of GA players, you know, are really well organised and, you know, it's just a matter of doing that and finding, you know, your passion and purpose in terms of your career as well. And, you know, I think you'd be far more beneficial to your training or matches if you're going into work on a Monday morning excited by it if you're coming leaving work on a Tuesday even going to train and, and you've had a day that has stimulated you and, you, and you've really enjoyed it for, for, per se rather than bored and you know feeling kind of helpless and hopeless in, in the role that you're in like yeah yeah uh, I, I suppose one of the, one of the things that with the modern game you're talking about kind of the differences in modern game in the modern game in terms of SNC and all of the different ways that things are being measured. Um, like you, you do see kind of a lot more of a controlled and structured game. Um, I suppose one of the things that that I kind of wanted to ask you about was like I suppose expression in itself. And you, you see certain players like in, in Hurl and you see your Aussie Gleasons and you know these kind of guys who still are very expressive, but it is something which is kind of being it's harder and harder to do. And um, like how, what's your kind of advice to kind of players in, in terms of being able to express yourself, but obviously then stay within the stay within the uh, the boundaries of the team and the tactic and, and and so on because otherwise you'd be expressing yourself on on the bench yeah I, I still think like there's there's absolutely a massive need and room for those type of players and, and thankfully i still think they're there for the majority like when you think through you know the tj reeds the keen lynches um you know Ozzy Gleeson, those you mentioned, Desi Hutchins, and there's, there's some great players there. And I know we're, we're going very structure-based, both in Gaelic football and hurling, and you hope it's not lost. But, you know, I think when you look at the, the influence of the likes of a Pep Guardiola and his coaching, you know, they nearly always leave the, the final third of the field to those creative players and letting them do their thing in terms of movement and, and patterns. And I think we need to be conscious of that in GA as well, that we allow those player players to be at the top end of the field and, and doing their thing and maybe not back in half back lines or full back lines, putting in tackles as much as possible. And, you know, that comes down to, you know, your own structure and coaching and making sure that we get that balance right between defence and attack. And, you know, those players do absolutely have to tackle at different times, but you want to be doing their majority of the work 80% of the time up the other end of the field where they can create those pockets of space or create those openings or those scoring chances for teams. And, you know, I think it's really, really important we continue to highlight and encourage those players both at underage and, and senior level. I think, like when when you're you're obviously working with full arrays of squads and panels, like do do you notice a a massive difference in terms of just even in 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 how those guys interact and think about the game when you're talking to them, like those kind of expressive players? Is there is there kind of a bit a bit more of a 
is it is it more of a confidence or is it like you know what is it exactly that kind of makes those players because they're not afraid to make mistakes they kind of risk reward balance they kind of back themselves a bit more um you know what it is what is it that makes those those players such um so expressive and such leaders I think if you you kind of read into their kind of background when they're growing up, first off, I think it's maybe the different environments they're in. So if you just took Keane as an example, you know, playing soccer at a, at a high level underage as well as the hurling, you know, it gave them a lot of different peripheral vision and awareness and, and footwork and speed of thought and speed of movement. So, you know, a lot of studies and science would tell us that, you know, if we can have kids involved in multiple sports at a young age, you know, be it two or three that cause, you know, different movement patterns, different thinking patterns, you know, it just opens up the field for them then when they get to adult in, in a different variety. So I think that's probably the first thing that, you know, we expose kids to different sports and different style of sports and uh, get them thinking in different ways and moving in different ways. And, you know, that allows that creative side of, of, of play to come out in them. Uh, so that's probably the first thing. And then, you know, also in our training context as well, you know, are we encouraging players to try things to make mistakes and, and how do we reaffirm or reinforce after they've made mistakes that that's absolutely okay and, and we back you 100% around that and that's a good decision. Um, so, you know, your training environment, your coaching environment, your player environment in terms of communication around mistake and failures and, and how we, I suppose, evaluate them and, and appraise them is really, really important. And, you know, the individual player themselves as well and um, you know it's allowing them to bring their personality so you know if their personality is around creativity and trying things and been been open-minded you know how do we allow that to happen in the environment in terms of you know how they dress um you know their their access to different music and artists um been able to explain their own background and their own history and their own interests and their own family and making people feel i suppose psychologically safe in those environments to, to try those things so you know our, our environment and our people and our environment are a huge part of those players i suppose expressing that creative side of their personality and bring that out onto the pitch and, and i suppose that's kind of a lot of the work that, that you'd be doing and, and encouraging when you're in in the backroom teams is to do that sort of stuff to allow that kind of yeah those, those yeah kind those of conversations to happen and people to be feeling safe that they can be vulnerable in an environment that you know it's okay to make mistakes here you're you're not um shamed for it or embarrassed by it it's actually put our hand up here yeah i tried that it didn't come off you know let's try again and you know allowing mistakes to happen in the training session and you know recognizing the brilliance in the effort recognizing the progress and in, in trying to make the right decision um, you know, giving players the options and, and the opportunities outside of training and matches to express their personality, be it, you know, different team building things that you do. Uh, and, you know, when we're talking in groups as well, that everyone has a voice and opinion and is heard and listened to and respected as well. So, you know, it's it's all those aspects in really. I suppose when you kind of when you're talking about those kind of things, there's a lot of culture and 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 communication and and when you're thinking of top managers now, like the I suppose you're seeing how successful Limerick are now, and everyone's talking about John Kiley and and you worked with, with Limerick um in 2019, like with what kind of separates someone like him? Because like I even the conversation we had about careers and and the way that you know he he allows players you know to take a break you know to go and maybe do a bit of traveling or to focus on different things. Like is that something that he was more receptive to kind of the work that you were doing and interested in it than maybe some not the other manners weren't at all but maybe more so um and is that one of the things that you found that was kind of that's kind of is very special about him 
Yeah, I think he puts a real value on mindset and the mental side of performance. And, uh, you know, how, how do I recognise that's been valued? You get time in the week to work with players. You get time in the week to work with the team. Um, and as you highlighted there, John is very respectful of the players' time as well. So he doesn't bombard them with, you know, messages, meetings and information. They get plenty of time off in the week. They get plenty of time off in the off-season. Uh, and it is off. They're not, valid, you know, constantly bombarded with apps and messages and, and that type of thing. So players are given that space and time to recover with their families. They're given that space and time to develop their careers off the field. And they're given that space and time to re recover from the intensity of training and matches as well. So, you know, that's why you probably see, you know, Limerick and Dublin when they're going really well as well. You got that sense of their environment that, you know, that 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 social development away from sport, that recovery away from sport was really valued and, and players were allowed, you know, develop off the field as well. And it wasn't taken up with, you know, excessive training and excessive meetings. And, you know, there was a lot of time off for players to, you know, have time with friends and family and have time in their careers and have the energy to, you know, to serve those needs that, that everyone has in their life. I suppose from the earlier podcast we had with Paul Clark and from some of the other players and coaches in the Dublin setups that I would know, a lot of the this the situation there was it was player led and, and like a lot of the extra meetings they would have had would be players organizing themselves and and there wasn't that constant micromanagement because there was a trust on the the players is that kind of what was at the heart of that as well at Limerick that there wasn't a constant need to be on them constantly because there was a trust in them yeah I think uh you know when I came into it in 2019 you had probably you know three or four very good years of work put in there in terms of the management team was you know, John, Paul Connor, the SNC with Joe O'Connor, Carolyn Curd, obviously. So they had a really good process and, uh, and team dynamic in place as it was. So it was very streamlined in terms of, you know, their session planning, uh, their season planning, their monthly planning. And, uh, you know, there was great rest periods built in as well as, you know, when they worked hard by Jesus, the, you know, the training sessions were intense and, you know, players asked a huge amount of questions of each other in those training sessions as well as the meetings, etc. When they're off, then they're a great group to switch off and have fun and relax around each other and uh, be themselves like. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I suppose going on to one of the questions that you probably get a lot when you're um, talking to teams, like I suppose in your job, the value of it kind of only really comes to the fore when people are having their dips in confidence, then they kind of really want to 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 come to you where they probably need to be coming to you from, from the off. But I suppose a lot of players are often asking you, like, how, how do you deal with a dip in confidence, dip in form, you know, when you're really struggling? Um, yeah, when you really don't back yourself or you've lost that deep confidence and then in in turn because of the form or that's leading to a, a, a loss of form like I know it's a, it's kind of a very vast question but like what's the the ways that you would you would first of all tackle that yeah I suppose it's first off to start off of the season you're identifying with a player like yourself Eamon you know like what makes you really good like you've arrived at senior level with that senior club or senior county for yourself what makes you really good? What makes you unique and different as a player? And we all have maybe some sort of edge that maybe gives us a, an advantage over opponents or marking, be it, you know, your distribution or your physicality or your concentration. And it's trying to find those one or two things that separate you and you feel help you to play at your best. So you're kind of identifying two or three kind of key components or qualities that, you know, differentiate you and make you excel. And, you know, from that then, you know, 
how well have we been doing that throughout the, the the training sessions and the matches on a consistent basis and you know how do I get back to that player if I, I've lost some of my confidence you know is there some recent evidence where you know I've done things well uh, and I try to go back to some past performances or past training sessions where you know maybe I've tackled well or scored well or I've passed well or I've communicated well and trying to look at that recent evidence and build myself back up from that you know, is there some previous clips from video that I could go back to and highlight those previous accomplishments to myself? Could I list some of my achievements that I've had in sport or in life where, you know, I've overcome challenges put in front of me and, and I've managed that? And, you know, what what's going on in my life at the moment maybe that's affecting my emotional state, be it stress or, or whatever? And, you know, could we take a small bit of that away and, you know, start approaching sessions with a bit more lightheartedness and joy and fun and, you know, got it from a kind of a, a younger self version or a childlike version and getting that sense of, of fun and positive emotions back into the training sessions where we're just kind of focused on effort and enjoyment and learning rather than, you know, the outcomes that we talked about at the start. So they'd be kind of, you know, two or three things that we'd start to work with players and just get them back, um, you know, thinking thinking positively, feeling positively and behaving positively, you know, outside the pitch and inside the pitch. And, you know, gradually they get back to, you know, their best self and their best form. And and that is obviously something you, you would be seeing regularly in terms of players coming to you with, uh, like feeling the weight of the world on their shoulders and feeling that like you know they're they're playing terribly and everything is going wrong. But I suppose small changes can can make a big difference. Yeah, and you, you kind of have to challenge those assumptions. Like, uh, are you playing terribly and are you playing really poorly? And you know, how long do you feel this has been the way? And and maybe if we're looking at things from that really negative lens, it can be hard to spot maybe some of the positives that we're doing in training or matches. So you kind of have to help players maybe reframe that you know, you've had three training sessions in the last week now and has your form for those 210 minutes been absolutely horrible? Can you pick out things for me that you started to do well in those sessions? Uh, and you can nearly see maybe the, the change in players' mood and their, their energy when they start to highlight to you, well, I got in some good tackles here or, you know, I, I got a couple of scores in training or I made some good passes. So now we're removed from that kind of horrible mind, state of mind and everything is terrible to I'm kind of a bit more neutral now and I'm actually able to see some of the good behaviours that came up in the last couple of training sessions and you know what would be one area that could make a big improvement in terms of the next training session or match that you could go after and what would you work on around that before the session and in the session to bring it up another level so you're just trying to get them back into the process of what good performance is you're kind of getting them to recognise their own progress and what they're actually doing well and you know looking at things that are maybe not going well it's just improvement areas and areas development rather than something i'm useless at or i'm a failure at or, or I, i'm not improving at all at and, and it's horrible and terrible and um, so you know trying to change them from the language of horrible and terrible as well you know i i don't think they should be in you know your, your vocabulary as a sports person you know going for a life-saving operation that's probably something that's terrible and horrible for people but sports performance you know although it can be difficult and different difficult at times you know words like you know i'm not going well at the moment or i'm not performing as well as i'd like are probably more healthier ways of looking at it yeah yeah and, and i suppose a lot of what you're saying there is kind of giving somebody something to focus on to kind of block out all of the other noise it kind of if, if you give them something that positive or something that they can control 
to focus on that kind of blocks out the rest of the and whether that's as you said something in the game that they can control or whether that's looking at um yeah just some kind of a goal or something for them to have or focusing on things they have done well yeah absolutely we can't hold a positive and a negative at the same time so for it to frame our mind towards positive or, or process actions that will help with performance or then you know that that's where our focus and our lens will go and it'll help with that perspective then in terms of how we evaluate things i, I think it's in it's interesting um like when you're saying about kind of teaching people you know to make mistakes and it's okay to make mistakes and you know to focus on their strengths do you kind of i know obviously differs some managers you know, are at a different level with this stuff than others. But do you find that you kind of have to work with the management team and the the thorough, the the full coaching staff as well in that regard? I suppose to to if you're telling a player that it's okay to make mistakes, but then if the management team are saying, you know, like no mistakes, we don't want anyone making any mistakes, or if you're telling the players they want you to focus on your strengths here and get back to expressing yourself as who who you are, but maybe the management team needs to be aware of what that guy's personality and what his strengths really are as well like there is a big crossover there i imagine because massively i mean yeah massively there needs to be huge alignment you know and if players are suffering dips in form that you know the sports psychologist is working as part of the coaching team to help with that improvement in that player so you know the coach is going to be on the pitch three times a week for him so you know it's about him spotting the strengths spotting things he's done well reinforcing them at every single opportunity you know, and also like recognizing there is a need in every player that we we all have limitations, we all have areas of development, and it's it's how we frame that for the player and say, listen, I'm going to help with your work on that area, but I don't want you to forget, you know, these are your three things that you're really strong on, and this this is what we want to see consistently from you, uh, and every player in the squad has something to work on. I'm going to help you work on that, but I want you to put you know 80 percent of your time into what you're good at and showing us that. And, and we'll back you on that and we'll work with you on that as much as possible as well. So, you know, everyone from the, the coach and staff is working towards, you know, reinforcing and positive reinforcement to that player, as well as the players around them, you know, encouraging them and, and reminding them of what he's good at. Uh, and your video analysis player people as well, maybe sharing some clips of, of what he does well. So you're trying to work on it from those different approaches to encourage and, and improve the confidence of players. Yeah, just... I suppose you talking about these kind of conversations and, and that focus and that kind of culture, it's it's easy to see why, you know, Tip, Limerick, Ballygunner, these teams are having that kind of success because your everyday club team and, and most county teams don't have these conversations going on. It's kind of the reality of it. Like most county teams don't and definitely most, most club teams don't in terms of creating a culture and creating that kind of, yeah, that focus on those those small things or those hu- human things. So that's small, those human kind of details. Is that something that you see like, for some like it is it is it's only being hit on the, the the top teams are the only ones who are kind of really getting this uh listen yeah i think like it, it it takes a bit of time and a bit of work to put these things in place and and to educate everyone like we all have i suppose a negativity bias in our brain where we're you know maybe searching for the things that go wrong and the things that aren't right and uh you know i still have that problem every single day myself maybe when i wake up and at different periods of the day where i'm looking at things from a negative lens and you know we just have to maybe challenge those negative lenses at times and you know our language is the gateway to do that as well as you know um you know video and, and all these other aspects so you know it's just trying to you know educate the the management team align the management team around that align the players around that 
And, you know, it's not we don't fall off from doing this at different times. It absolutely do. Or we can be negative in our communication or our body language or our outlook. Uh, and we all need support at that time. At, at different times, we need to be challenged on different times. And it's a work in progress throughout the week and the month to, you know, develop that culture. But, you know, over time, when you do start to get it right, you just see such positive um you know out outcomes from us in terms of players enjoyment of training players enjoyment and improvement in their performance their their outlook and life and on a day-to-day -day basis you just see their relationships improving their work improving and their overall life satisfaction improving when they're they're working from this more positive and, and helpful orientation and uh, you know that that for me is the the really uh, powerful thing on, on this work side of it when you do get it right in team cultures that it can you know affect families it can affect communities it can affect the country in a really positive way when, when you have people uh, role modeling these behaviors as frequently as possible yeah yeah definitely like that's that's what i'm kind of thinking with that in terms of the way that that limerick team conducts itself and behaves and the way john Kiley does and the way that jim gavin and the dub and desi and the dublin team conducted themselves like every business and every workplace should be looking at that because that is your your model for you know a happy workforce people as i said players that the players are actually then doing extra work and going above and beyond but i think um one of the the things that kind of is a real difficulty for players which at times is out of their control is injury so like when a player suffers an injury um and they come to you and they're off, you know, they've, they've the initial kind of, especially a serious injury, you know, they're kind of really going through that difficult morning period. Um, what's your kind of, I suppose, advice for, for dealing with those um, kind of setbacks? Yeah, I suppose, depending on the severity of it, Eamon, there is probably a natural kind of grief around it at the start in terms of, you know, there's a bit of a depression and a, a helplessness and a hopeless maybe if you're after a cruciate or a broken leg and, you know, you're waiting to meet a consultant and you're unsure of the length of time or the severity of it. And, you know, it's absolutely trying to be accepting of your emotions during that time, that it is sad, it is disappointing, it can be overwhelming, it can be a sense of, you know, depression around it. And, and to be actually accepting that though those feelings are okay and to acknowledge them. And, uh, you know, bit by bit, you know, you're trying to get players to focus in on, okay, when we you know meet with the surgeon and we meet with the medical team we'll be able to give you you know a pathway of recovery around this and you know there's loads of examples of players that have come back from broken legs and, and continue to play at an even higher level same with cruciate injuries so you might even line up meetings with a couple of those role models that have come through something similar and they can be a great kind of social support and it's also to get the, the family and teammates and, and management and friends on board as well that you know, this player is going to need a certain level of support at the moment, whether it's a lift down to training or a lift to work or, you know, a lift to the doctors or, or, or physio, you know, how can we come in, come in around them and help them support around that? So you're trying to look at all those kind of supports that are really, really important. And then, you know, just the player himself individually, like, how's he thinking about this? Is he seen it as career threatening or, you know, an, an injury that's going to ruin his career and he's never going to get back? Or, you know, is he quite hopeful and optimistic in terms of this happens thousands of players around the world, hundreds of players in, in the county, uh, and most of them get back? And you're trying to frame that in that kind of optimistic context that, you know, this will happen and, you know, it's an opportunity. Now you won't be on the field for, you know, the next four, four or five months, but, you know, what could it give you an opportunity to develop in your game? And, you know, although your knee is injured now, 
you know, what could you work on in terms of flexibility or strength in other parts of your body? And, um, you know, maybe even putting something off career-wise that it gives you this time now to devote off the field. Um, what else could you maybe do in terms of the team environment, in terms of video analysis or stats or helping younger players or, or a coach in the club or whatever? So you're trying to frame it as an opportunity for them now that this has happened rather than, you know, the end of something and, you know, it could open up a, a more rounded person and a more rounded player because of this free time you have now to devote to other areas and you're trying to set goals from in those different areas as well that you know there's something to progress towards and something they can achieve on and you know once they get in then to kind of the rehab structure of it um you know it kind of takes on a life of its own with the medics in terms of the physio and doctor and they can kind of map their progress week to week and month to month and you know, once players start doing a bit in the gym then and start to bit running on the field, you can see naturally, you know, the enthusiasm returns to them in terms of, yeah, this is getting closer and closer to getting back on the field and, you know, their return to play protocols kick in then. So it's kind of very well streamlined now in terms of recovery and, and use the different resources that are there. Yeah, yeah. I think that, like, obviously for the, the teams that you're working with or, you know, sports psychologists are working with, they're kind of, at an advantage because then players kind of have access to somebody who can kind of talk them through this but the stuff that you're saying i think is really important for general coaches and other players to talk to to have these conversations with their their teammates or if you know for parents to their kids because yeah it is like at that like i, I did my, my cruciate and, and like at that time yeah you you the people who are around you it's really important the information they give you because you are kind of at a real low um and like you're saying about kind of when the rehab comes like after you've had the surgery yeah it does it just takes over itself and i know that when i'd done my acl i had um i got a call from dave Allred, who i'd recently done some bits with and the um in a podcast and and uh he he rang me nicely and just because what a, a kind of a a person who we both knew had said to him that i'd done the cruciate and and that i was really struggling with it and i suppose for me i'd just done my mcl i'd just come back i'd been out for about six months with that and then had was just about getting back right and then did my ACL. I was getting older and kind of was really angry and was saying, I didn't know whether I wanted to play or not again. And I suppose just that somebody to say, like, why are you even thinking of that? Like, you need to just, like, that decision will make itself, you know, and, and it does. Like, once you've had the surgery and you go into the rehab, like, all those things just, they just, you, 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 it's not, it's the decision is made for you. It was never a brainer where you're there after that first few weeks after you've an injury like that, you're thinking of everything. And it's so, um, I think it is. It's so important to have good people around you, and like the the t the players who you're working with are blessed because they have access to that. But yeah, I think that every conversation you have with someone who's like at that ACL, just on their ACL, or just broke a leg, or something really bad, like yeah, everyone needs to kind of give them right messages, those positive messages. Yeah, like to be absolutely stages where you need that support, and to be stages where you're flowing through it, and the rehab is going brilliantly, and you can see your progress really quickly. And then there's other weeks where you just feel you've made no progress and, you know, the frustration kicks in then. And it's, it's those times really you need those people you can lean on in terms of who've maybe been down that road before or, you know, your physiotherapies who've probably seen hundreds of these injuries now and different stages that we all kind of heal and progress at. And, you know, it's just that reassuring voice that, that can make such a difference in terms of, you know, go down behaviours where, you know, I stopped doing my programme for two or three weeks because I'm frustrated to, you know, maybe have a day or two off and I get back on the horse again. And, you know, that's the importance of the athlete as well, opening up and saying, 
I'm really struggling here at this moment in time and I can't see any progress and I'm, I'm just fed up doing the rehab and I'm fed up with, you know, the whole notion of it and, you know, and then, you know, it can be just naturally taking a break for 48 hours or the weekend can make such a difference as well as the word of reassurance from the right per- person who's credible and knowledgeable in that area and, you know, they're back looking forward to it again and, and you know, getting back into their, their, their progress and, and that, that re- rehab protocol. Yeah, yeah. I, I suppose a similar kind of, um, I suppose, um, struggle that player every player culture at some stage is being dropped. Um, you know, like uh, as a player, you know, you can be dropped for a game, a big championship game, you kind of have to deal with that. Um, or you could be dropped long term, you mightn't be getting in at all. Like, I suppose one of the, the unique challenges that pre- the GA presents um, is that, you know, it's not like soccer or other sports where if you're not getting a look in, you, you just go somewhere else, you know, like you just join another team. And that's the reality for pretty much every other sport. But in GA, you're if you're at a club team, for instance, and you're not getting a look in, um, yeah, it can be a real challenge. And I've, I've seen myself, guys over the years who have really struggled with that, you know, their home life is, is there, they're set up there and they're not getting a look in. What's your kind of approach to that? Because I've seen how that like, it's very rare that you see someone kind of, go about that in a positive way um, and try and tackle it in a positive way. Um, like what would your advice to be be to someone who A, has been dropped for, you know, a big game and then B, someone who's kind of not getting a look in at all? Yeah, I think uh, the, the first one is was getting dropped for a big game. I think it's, uh, you know, trying to get an understanding and a context from the management in terms of wh- how the selection was made at, uh, the decision was arrived at and, you know, it might be just a, a positional switch or a personnel switch. And, uh, you know, it's not to take that personally then that they've just gone for a taller person in that position because, you know, it's it's a height advantage that they need for that kick out or, or puck out or whatever it is. And, you know, you can kind of reason with that logic. And, you know, if the manager then reassures them that we'll be looking at you as number one in for that position or that line, well, then we need you ready for that and we need you to get mentally prepared for that. It's, I think, when players are left with no communication and there's an uncertainty of where they are in the pecking order and their involvement, that's where the frustration can come in and, you know, you start to see negativity seeping into squads and into individuals. So I think the clarity around communication and selection and, you know, if there's things there that the player can work on in terms of yeah, getting himself ready for the game the weekend or over the longer term hasn't been selected for a couple of weeks, you know, what, what's the area that he can work on to improve on that would help with him getting a, a more opportunities to play, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, I think that clarity and open line of communication with the management team, you know, is a huge part of it. And then, you know, it's trying not to personalise it just because you're not starting on the team. You could have the the best club side or, or county side in Ireland at the moment where players are just in really good form and, you know, it can be hard to break in mid-season in the championship. And, you know, it's just trying to, you know, recognise that you're still a good player, you know, you're not defined by your sport. Um, you know, what are the other things in life that you can focus in on now at the moment as well, that this isn't dominating your whole life on a day-to-day and week-to-week basis and, you know, trying to excel at other areas, be it your career, you know, in your own relationships at home, your own involvement in your community or your club, and, uh, you know, trying to take a sense of achievement from that and a sense of progress from that as well. And, uh, you know, just trying to come to the training environment in a positive way and bringing your best effort and energy and your communication and, you know, what will be will be then in terms of selection and the outcome, that's up to the management. But it's about you trying to take as much enjoyment and, 
you know, trying to see every training session as a, an opportunity to improve and learn and grow as a, as a player and, you know, try to take the outcomes out of as much as possible and, and focus on your own development and your own, you know, application t- to the session and matches and making sure that you're progressing and improving and, and hopefully that opportunity will come and it can come quite quick, you know, players can come down with bugs or injuries or whatever and it's important thing is to be ready for those moments when you are called on the game. Yeah, yeah. Um, I suppose three of the tools that, um, or two, two especially of the tools that you um, talk about would be affirmations and visualizations. I know that with those before you sent us some, um, I suppose visualization audio clips that were really beneficial uh, based on our on our positions and like talk to us about visualization. Um, first of all, the importance of it, and then um, kind of the the I suppose the main parts that make, you know, the, the main way that you would do it or the main steps to, to a good visualization session. Yeah, I suppose I would have suffered, I suppose, with a, a lack of confidence at different times in my career and, and getting very anxious around, you know, the bigger games like all Ireland finals and semi-finals and national finals. And I think number one tool that I found really, really helpful for me from a, a playing experience was visualization to, I suppose, maybe change the neural pathways in the brain. Maybe I was you know, more focused on negative things happening rather than positive. I was more focused on the opposition and what they were bringing rather than my own capability. And when we use things like visualization to rehearse um, what we're going to experience in the playing environment, along with our physical practice, it can be a really, really powerful thing to change our mind into a more positive orientation to focus on our own strengths and focus on what we want to happen and, and how we're going to do it rather than worrying around the negative things that might happen or concern us. And, uh, you know, if those negative things are, are, are mistakes that we're worried about or could happen, it's maybe to, to visualise your own response around those things, that if I concede a score or I misplace a pass or I drop a ball, you know, how would I reframe that and how would I visualise my response in a second or two around that? And even that can be really helpful. So. That, that physical practice as in on the field and, and that mental practice of, of visualization, rehearsing your up and coming event in terms of playing in Crow Park, the dress rooms, what you'll experience in terms of the playing situations can be a great way to prepare the mind for what, what's inevitably going to happen in that environment. And it's almost when you do that for 10 or 15 minutes, a couple of times a week, you know, when you go out into that arena, then it feels like almost really normal for your mind and body that I've already experienced this, I've rehearsed it mentally, and it doesn't have the same mental disruption on your focus, and, and also your body feels a bit more relaxed and calm in that environment because you've placed those pictures into the mind. Um, so that's where I've seen huge benefit in my, my own game from that, in terms of my confidence and my focus, but also the teams I've worked with as well, I found they've you know, been able to get that level of deep focus and confidence in themselves in those bigger moments and bigger occasions uh, due, due to the work of visualization as a tool. Uh, you're saying there 10 or 15 minutes, two or three times a week. I suppose that's one of the things that um, a lot of people would be guilty of. Like, <laughs> I know that like the you sent out a really good clip for that. And I suppose the come championship, the, the heart of champ or the heat of championship, um, I listen to that maybe once or twice a week for the couple of weeks where I suppose you kind of need to approach these things, visualizations, affirmations, the same way as you would your eating and your gym and all of these things and be consistent with it and do it, you know, as a, as a part of your lifestyle. 
Yeah, and I think if you could bring it into your training sessions as well, like the more you practice something, you get better at the skills. So I'd often say to players, you know, you're waiting drills in the training session. You know, could you, if you're doing a kick pass or a strike pass and hurling, while you're maybe third man in that kind of waiting queue, could you visualize your best strike, your best kick and do four or five reps of that before the kick actually comes up? And that's actually practicing the skill of visualization. You know, before you take a free, you might be a free taker. You know, could I practice my best lift and my best strike or my best kick as a Gaelic footballer? And I'm starting to put maybe 50 or 60 of those reps into my training sessions. Now, all of a sudden, that skill is more fluid that when you come to a game scenario, you know, your visualization, you're able to do it in three or four seconds before an event. And, and it's just really automatic and, and really lucid. Um, so it's trying to bring it into, you know, every training context that you're, you're building both the mental and physical. And then, you know, when you're preparing for your up and coming matches, be it a league or a challenge or a championship match, it just becomes part of your DNA where you go through your role and you rehearse maybe situations that could come up and you, you rehearse your response four or five times. And, you know, you find you're just playing out the pitch then on that subconscious autopilot mode. And a lot of the subconscious and autopilot mode comes from, your, your training experience, your visualization and your video experience. So, you know, you map those in in those three different ways uh, and you see yourself performing really high level skills on a consistent basis in that way. You know, that expectation in my experience comes out more often than not uh, through those kind of three pronged approaches, through your video watching your clips, through your, your visual rehearsal, your mental rehearsal and visualization and actual physical practice then on the field when you're doing this as well. And it's, it's just a great way to cement that practice into your, your neural pathways in your brain. And what's the kind of setting then that um, for the visual, um, for the visualization, like are you looking for someone to go, someone to go into a quiet room, lie down, like what are the kind of the steps to a good quality visualization when you are doing it on your own? Yeah, I suppose what they recommend when you're out in the pitch in the actual physical training session, if you're taking a strike or a kicking Gaelic football and it takes you two seconds to repeat, you can do that with eyes open or eyes closed and just see yourself doing that in your mental picture and your mental imagery that way. So they reckon if you could do, you know, five reps of that same skill, you know, in a, in a, in a 15 second block like that and take a 15 second recovery, that's a really effective way of doing it. Um, so, you know, you could do a couple of reps of that when you're on the field working on particular areas, if it's hand passing or stick passing or high catching uh, and doing those kind of mental reps about four or five times, you know, out in the field, standing up, eyes open or eyes closed can be a really effective way to, to add to the actual physical practice. And then, you know, what I've always found helpful then is to, you know, when you're preparing for a big match is actually, uh, you know, lying down on the floor and getting your body into a nice relaxed state. Uh, getting your subconscious mind kind of prepared for, you know, visually going through those scenarios of being in the dressing room, coming out the tunnel, going out onto the pitch and using your five senses, that sense of smell, taste, touch, sound, uh, feeling uh, and bring them into your plays in that way. And, you know, anything from, you know, two to five minutes kind of rehearsing those plays a couple of times a week, you know, will bring big benefits and so when I record audios for teams, we maybe have, you know, 10 or 12 minute audios, but we would work on, you know, breath work to calm the central nervous system from stress to relaxation response. 
We work on progressive muscle relaxation, which releases tension physically out of the body, but mentally out of the mind as well. We do some meditation exercises to kind of control our attention and work on our attentional control as well as our emotional control. And then we'd actually rehearse, I suppose, the actual physical uh, demands of your position and trying to replicate that as much as possible. So when players go out, then there's less mental disruption when they're playing that kind of rehearse those positions they're going to be in, rehearse those situations and seeing themselves for the most part do them really well. And, and do you see kind of affirmations as kind of within that or do you, do you kind of get players to do affirmations as well or is that kind of not something that you would prioritise? Um, it's probably a separate practice. You could include it in that session as well. But, you know, I'd always say to players that, you know, a part of your pre-performance routines, you should be affirming to yourself something around your strengths. So, you know, in the warm-up, what gets me in the most, best kind of, thinking mind frame and, and feeling mind frame. So what do I say to myself when I'm warming up? You know, I'm strong, I'm fast, I'm fit, I'm ready. And you reaffirm that to yourself, you know, five or 10 times in the warm up. It just puts you into a good kind of mental and physical state. So trying to find those words that resonate with you, you know, is really, really important. Uh, you know, in, in a match situation, what are the mental cues or mental focus words that help you get into your best mental focus? So, you know, reset, focus on the next ball, be present, you know, be committed, uh, be all in, be 100% uh, in the present moment. So it's trying to work on those kind of, we do know that our thoughts guide our attention, that our thoughts guide how we feel. So it's really important that we actually practice our language in training sessions, we practice our language in pressure situations, and we affirm to ourselves things that we can control, we affirm to ourselves our strengths in those moments. And that takes practice because sometimes when we get fatigued or tired or we're in pressure situations and things aren't going well, it's very easy for that inner voice to get critical and harsh towards yourself and judgmental to yourself. And when you're in that space, you're not seeing positive things happening on the field, you're not feeling positive in yourselves and you're more than likely going to pull back from things. So, you know, using things like affirmations or positive statements to yourself or positive keywords or focus words, you know, are really, really important to guide your attention, but also guide your energy and confidence in those critical moments. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I suppose um, what like when you're in that in that in that stage, as you said, you can't you can't have a positive and a negative thought at the same time. So I know that like in a, you know, a hard the hard part of the warm up or something like that, your mind would be wandering saying, geez, maybe I'm not. Uh, maybe I'm wrecked here or maybe I'm just tired today or you know maybe I trained too hard during the week or if you can keep telling yourself oh, I'm really really fit I've trained so hard all week it's blocking out the other it's because as you said you can't have two at the same time yeah and it's that practice and that repetition that's really really important around that and over time you find your language is getting more positive oriented is more helpful and even you know at different times we might feel like we're absolutely sluggish and, and wrecked in a warm-up and it's just to say you know, I'm just getting into my second wind here and I'm reframing it. You know, I'm going to be flying here in a couple of minutes. And, you know, even if the warm up isn't going perfect, it's all about the start of the match and I'm going to be ready for the start of the match. So, again, you're reorientating your energy and your focus through your language and reframing that self-talk. And, you know, self-talk is something that we can do. It's something we can practice. It's something we can get better at. So having a little script and a couple of statements you say to yourself in the warm up when it's going well or maybe when it's not going so well or in the course of a game you're going to be flying and you know you're not even aware of your thoughts and you're in that flow experience but there'll be times when there's a struggle happening you're, you're having a, a tough time in a game a tough 10 minutes 
And what's your script for then? Like, are you going to be harsh and critical and judgmental to yourself? Or are you going to start using more positive language that focus on the process, focus on what's positive, focus on your strengths and focus on, on, on your attention in the present moment? And that takes a bit of work. If you don't um, have practiced that, well, then we can, you know, natural default is to the negative and then, you know, you're down a path that takes up your attention, it takes up your energy and you're not going to get the best out of yourselves in those moments when, you know, challenge meets. Yeah, yeah. And it, it is a training thing because I know that, you know, when you do the visualization, you haven't done it before. It, the more times you do it, the more you can stay concentrated for longer. And it, it is tiring, like your brain, if you find it hard with your brain to stay stimulated like with that. But at the same time, if they, if your brain, if you can train your brain in that way, then when you're really tired on the field, you'll be more disciplined with your brain as well and what you're telling them. Yeah, absolutely. And and your language will become more disciplined then when you when you actually practice that in training sessions when you know, you're in the middle of hard drills, you're short of air, you're short of oxygen, you know, you're fatigued. You know, the most important thing then is what's the voice in your head saying to yourself that I'm too tired and I can't continue or, you know, this too will pass and I just breathe and reset my body language and reset my my, my mental practice around that. I suppose the last kind of um, question um, or topic was, you know, I always think of Tara O'Shea. I don't know if you've seen his his book when he, he referred to the um the psychologist they had in at the time or performance coach they had in at the time, and he kind of was you know of the attitude of you know that I don't know what he could teach me that I I haven't learned myself after this time, which obviously isn't the right attitude to have. But there is there is something in it in, in terms of you know I I suppose you as a in your job there's a lot of um, behaviors or kind of approaches that the players have developed themselves these elite players. That you know you can you can pick up from how they're doing it themselves and I, so I suppose in terms of you know all these these great teams and winning teams and players you've worked with is there any that stands out kind of a behavior or something an approach that a player had that kind of that you found was just really really impressive and kind of was leading to why they were so good or, or so impressive um great question I think uh you know going back to Dara's point I think it's uh you know Possibly in 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 that era, and I was part of it myself as well. You know, as you mentioned, your your sports psychologist might come in for a one off, and you know it's very hard for anyone to embed you know the key practices and the key behaviors and and the culture that you want to bring in in, in one session. So, you know, thankfully, you know sports psychologists are, are getting more time with teams and more number of workshops and more individual work to kind of show how, how these things can evolve and develop over time. So, you know, to go back to Dara's point, it's trying to, you know, bring across to players a growth mindset that there's no, I suppose, perfect player yet. There's no perfect team yet. We all have, uh, you know, limitations and areas we need to develop. And, you know, through, you know, whatever it is, a player profile or a team profile, we can kind of understand what are the things we're really good on and what are the areas of improvement and, you know, having those conversations to, to get the best out of our potential that way. Um, no, I just think with, with the best players, when you think of your, your top players in, in Tipperary and the Brendan Mahers and the Pawdy Mahers and the Noel McGraths and the Shane McCallans and, and, you know, same in Limerick or Galway or I could go through, you know, I just think it was their you know, hunger for learning, their hunger to improve uh, what they put into practice. And they weren't just practicing for practicing sake, that every drill, every moment was an opportunity to get better at something. And they nearly brought that kind of 
match focused to, to every training session, to every moment on the training ground, to every meeting. Uh, and, you know, that's what kind of came out a lot in terms of their consistency then on match day, that there was no difference to them. They weren't, you know, really bad trainers on a Tuesday and Friday and turned on the switch Sunday. You know, they were probably the leaders in terms of communication. They were leaders in effort. They were leaders in terms of punctuality. You know, their individual practice away from the field in terms of their shooting or their free taking, whatever it is, they were the leaders on that. And that's why, you know, they were generational players for 10 or 12 years and, and continue to set such high standards of performance because, you know, they, they led that way and they practiced that way. And, you know, their, I suppose their intention matched, matched their actions at all times. They want to be the best they could be. And, you know, they, they did that in every facet, be it the nutrition workshop or the sports psychology or, or the pitch session or the team meeting or, you know, been great teammates to be around as well. And, um, you know, I think they were super role models to, to learn off and, and watch at first hand. Yeah, I, I, I always think of, um, I can't recall which sports psychologist it was we had in with us, one of our Roscommon 21 teams before the Connacht final or a big game. We had a sports psychologist who came in and had worked with Ballon Tober years before with James Horan and had asked at the end of um, their talk, you know, who was the young guy in the corner with the notepad out who kept asking me questions and took notes and and it was uh, it was Kitty and O'Connor. Mm-hmm. So um and then obviously uh, James Warren was like, yeah, and keep an eye out for, for him. Like, so yeah, it, it is something that I am playing club football now in Dublin and, and you really do notice the, yeah, like that, that for every small detail, how serious they take those, that the, the, the hot players are taking those things, but at the same time, how much they enjoy it and how much they're kind of just enjoy the, the environment. And, and it's not like a chore to them. It's not like a, a, a massive they're serious about what they need to be serious about but there's also a, a a good balance there with it like um but yeah i think it helps in some ways as well um i suppose in in them having the access to the different things as well so that that's another conversation but thanks so much for your, your time there. there's so much there's so much in that like um from visualizations and, and affirmations um to yeah just in terms of the the process the processes that you've given there in terms of dealing with you know confidence loss and um approaching games like jesus there's, there's so much in that I, I know i'm going to be listening to it uh <laughs> the recording of it myself a couple of times but um yeah really appreciate your time really appreciate your time tony thanks Eamon. thanks a million for having me on the show and, and best of luck with the rest of the podcast